Hello, my name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor here at Encounter Church. We want to welcome you. If this is your first time. We're really glad you're here. We hope next 25, 30 minutes that you find it to be helpful, insightful. Um, today, we're starting a new series, one that I'm really excited about, called The Land of Ur. And it's about breaking free of the comparison trap. And for some of you, you can't relate to that video at all because you've never been in that moment of trying to one-up someone. And so this is for the other people in the room, people like me, who even this week in the process of preparing for a message on comparison, found myself in a room with some of the sharpest leaders of America who are pastors in large cities and around large cities. And we all gather once a year to kind of do peer education where we speak to one another, we we do these little TED Talk versions, and uh, one of the guys who was speaking to our group is an incredibly brilliant guy, and he was speaking to us about racial reconciliation and how their church is really helping to lead some of that in uh, the community they're in. And uh, in the midst of him talking and processing what he's been working through and what their church has been working through, he started to share about being in a meeting that he was invited to um, about a month ago, and he's, he He's talking about this meeting and the people in the meeting, and then he says, yeah, it was called by the president. I'm like, oh, the president of an organization, the president of, like, you know, nonprofit. It's like, no, President Obama. Oh, okay. And he starts to name all the people, and, and there's essentially him along with just a handful of other like high-powered leaders from around America that had been invited to the White House to have a discussion to advise the president on how, as a nation, we can begin to have conversations around reconciliation. And while he's talking, at that point, my brain shuts off from listening, and I kind of go into a place where, as I'm getting ready to prepare to talk about comparison and how I don't struggle with comparison the way other people struggle with comparison, I begin to compare myself to him. And all of the, well, I've never had the president of the United States want to talk to me, and president doesn't even know my name. And, well, I don't write letters to the president, and he's taller than I am. Man, I never realized how tall. And he's skinnier. Like, I bet he doesn't even have to work out to be that skinny. Man, he's so smart. What does that word even mean? Like, he's talking, and I've gone to this place where all I'm doing is sizing myself up with him and realizing I'm completely falling flat in every area. He's even got more hair than I do. And in the midst, there's like this kind of, you know, where it's like, ma, air horn breaks through, and it's like, oh, wait a second, you're supposed to talk about comparison this week, Chris. I can't even talk about comparison, because I'm sitting here comparing myself. Like, I'm not even good at that. And, and so then I just go into this deeper place. But I've got a, a theory that I'm not the only one who struggles with comparison. That you, like I, struggle with it too. That maybe for you it started in elementary or middle school if you were like me and your, your mom took you shopping in the husky section, which was a nice way of calling you fat without causing you to need counseling, and it didn't work, right? And that maybe at that point it started to steepen your life that maybe you wish you were a little skinnier or a little taller or a little smarter, right, or a little quicker on the field. But the, this idea of the er starts to creep in, and you start to want to get a little bit more er. You want to be smarter. You want to be cooler. You want to be faster. You want to be skinnier, right? This er starts to creep in, and you start to notice all these people who have more er than you do, and you start to want er. But then you get out of middle school, and you realize that the desire for er doesn't go away. 
You start dating, and now it's no longer you just wanting more er. You start to want more er for the person you're dating because they're an extension of you. You want her to be prettier or him to be smarter or a little bit more put together er, er, right? I mean, like you start to get consumed by this idea of er. And then you have kids. You get married, and you've, now the er starts to elevate even higher because now you share the same last name. And I'm sure you've never heard it said to you, but maybe you've said it to someone else. I'm not going out of this house with you if you look like that, right? Because all of a sudden, their last name's the same. The stakes have been raised, and your er is affected by their er or lack of it. And then you see your kids, like in the little video that we started off with, and how other kids seem to be smarter or faster. And you want to push and, and kind of, hey, head out, come on, run a little faster, jump a little higher, study a little harder. Like, let's control how much we're eating. We're getting a little too big. We can't get that much bigger. And this ur, this idea of we are living in a land, in a culture of ur, if we're not careful, can begin to start to trap us and to hold us back. It can eat away at our enjoyment of life. It can begin to destroy relationships. And even who you are on the inside can just start to kind of rot away if you get caught in this trap called comparison. Fortunately for us, this idea of living in the land of Ur is not something we discovered in 2015. This has been a constant human struggle. We're born into it, right? If No doubt some of you probably last night during Halloween festivities some of your kids looked at the other child's bucket of candy and said they have more. I want more candy. Or people comparing each other's costumes. Or maybe you compared your kid's costume to other people's kids' costumes because you made yours off Pinterest and they got theirs at Toys R Us. This insidious thing called comparison is something that 3,000 years ago, the wisest man who's ever lived wrote a, wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. And I recognize that even as I say that word, it sounds like one of those uncomfortable diseases that are being advertised in one of those drug commercials. But Ecclesiastes is actually a book, and it's a really profound book. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible, actually. Because for me, it, it was a book that is written in a frame of mind that I was when I was in my college years. It's written by the wisest man, who's ever lived towards the end of his life. And at that point, he kind of disconnected from God, and there was a bit of a spiritual wandering that was happening in his life. And so he begins to reflect on life and observe life from the perspective of being disconnected from God, of processing if this is all life has, from, from the cradle to the grave kind of feel, then what's the worth of life? And this book called Ecclesiastes times can feel very depressing. But in the midst of that kind of despair, depression, and just kind of sad way of looking at life, you see these profound moments of truth break through. And one is Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And this is where we're going to be because Solomon points out to us the two different dangers that exist if we live a life of comparison. And, and what he does is he points them out in the extremes, 
But I think it's helpful sometimes to realize that there are two extremes because we're always, if we're not careful, drifting towards one or the other if we're falling into a trap of comparison. So if you have the Encounter Church Bible app, you can fire that up and click on Bible. We've already loaded this passage for you. Um, if you need a Bible on the way out today, just grab one. We have one free from the same version that I, I speak from every week. And if you don't have either, um, we're going to have it on the screen behind me. And so you can just kind of work through We're going to be in three verses today, but these three verses are loaded with content. And I think give us a huge insight to how we break free from the comparison trap. He starts in chapters four, but he says, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He, so Solomon kind of makes this observation that, that kind of launches into these, these two dangers that he notices. He says that, you know what? As I've looked around, I've noticed that so much of what we do and how we do it comes from jealousy and envy of what other people have. And this is 3,000 years ago. They didn't have BMWs and Mercedes and Teslas, but I'm sure there were brands in their day. There were certain garments from certain garment makers. There were certain houses and architectures. There were certain foods that you ate that if you kind of lived in that realm, you were a little bit better than everyone else, that you could feel a little bit better than everyone else. And Solomon realizes that so much of what we do, so much of the hard work we put in, so much of the strife and the struggle comes from us wanting to one-up the people around us. And we still live in that day and age. In fact, we're getting ready to launch into holiday season, and most of the commercials that are going to play over the next 45 days are going to be motivated to motivate you to want to get something better for your kids than what other people have. In fact, you may not know this, but manufacturers will actually hold back a certain amount of product. They will over-advertise, if you were a child of the 80s and 90s and you remember the Furby or the Cabbage Patch Kids, right? What happened in that season still happens today. They over-advertise to get people thinking, I need that, I want that. Then they intentionally hold back Material. They're like, we've got 50,000 units, but we're only going to ship 20. Because they know what happens. There are going to be some lucky parents who get it, but the rest of the parents are going to feel like losers on Christmas morning when their kids open it up or whatever the holiday is that you may celebrate. And when the kids open it up and it's not the Furby or not the Cabbage Patch Kid or whatever the new thing will be this year, parents walk away feeling disappointed. And then the advertisers... And the toy makers ship the remaining 40,000 units or the 100,000 units for early January delivery. So as parents go back to look for the product, it's always magically there. Because the parents like, the other kids were like, well, Becky got that. All I got was this. And parents like, well, if Becky got it, I've got to get it too. I mean, marketers play off of this desire of comparison and make Billions of dollars every year stirring that up inside of us. And so what Solomon does is says, look, this drive, this, this push to want to compare and to want to be ambitious so that we can one-up each other has two dangers. In verse 5, he says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. This is the first danger, is the hands that you see folded. And the imagery 
that he's using in the language that he wrote it is, is meant to pull up this, when he says ruin themselves, it's actually this idea of starvation. That they fold their hands because they just give up in despair. That they're so gripped by comparison, they're so gripped by this life of looking what everyone else has that it leads to a place of disappointment, that moves to a place of depression, that finally leaves you in a state of despair. And you say, you know what? I'm never going to be that smart. I'm never going to be that healthy. I'm never going to be that funny. I'm never going to have that job. And you just, you give up. You resign. Like, there's, there's just no way I can do it. And in folding your hands, you start to just waste away. I think for me, I had a perfect picture of this feeling this week. Um, I, while I, I mentioned I'd been traveling some, there was, uh, I'd been <laughs> put in a room with a roommate who was a sleep talker and a sleep walker. I had not met him prior to staying with him, but he woke me up quite frequently the entire week. I am, um, I don't need a lot of things in life. I can function, you know, without food and kind of forget to eat sometimes because I get so focused on things. But sleep, if I lose sleep, I turn into this emotional basket case. I don't know, maybe some of you can relate, but I need sleep, like a solid, like, 12 and a half, but I'll take eight or nine. And um, in the midst of, like, not getting sleep uh, and hearing, oh, I hang out with the president and he asked me advice and we text each other, like, kind of deal, um, and then I'm talking, thinking, I'm supposed to talk about comparison and I'm really doing a bad job trying to avoid comparison, I finally get on the plane to fly back. And um, because I didn't check in early enough, I didn't make the upgrade list. And so I kind of plopped down in my seat. And I'm in one of those seats that doesn't have, like, the little nice retractable where, you, you know, you got a little bit of room. It's those hard metal, like, you know, baker's cups. You just kind of slide in and you become one with the seat. You don't even need to wear a seat belt. And, and of course, they're way too small. And so me and a new friend that I make, we're sitting beside each other, and we're both big guys, and so there's not, like, a lot of room. We're going to have to do, the, you know, like, the dance all the way back for the next four hours. And so while I'm sitting there, like, exhausted, knowing there's, I've got to write a me me message on comparison, I haven't done that very well that week, and all this stuff's running through my brain, and I happen to lean back at about the same time we both lean back, and a large rear end steps in on this side. And there is a moment where I am literally stuck between a rock, because the guy over here was pretty big and pretty strong, and a very soft place. And it um, wasn't hard. It was soft. And I was stuck. I couldn't move. And I'm just like, this is this is picture of what it's like to just want to give up. I started laughing, actually, because it was like, I'm jammed between, a, like, a large guy in a really large rear end, and I can't do anything about it. And in that moment, you just kind of want to, like, pull out the violin, send out the invitations to the pity party, and just go with it, right? And I think that's the sentiment that he's pointing out. It, you can get so wrapped up in despair. You can get so caught up. I mean, right? Isn't that social media? Isn't that what social media has been, like, I think designed to do? You compare your blooper reels of life to the highlight reels of everyone else. Right? No one puts real pictures on social media. Right? I mean, they don't put what their kids are really like or what their house really looks like or what their normal food is. You don't see people snapping, here's my PB&J for the third time this week. You don't see people bragging about that. They're like, oh, look at my son, president. Right? I mean, it's like perfect. 
And what happens is we compare our blooper reel to their highlight reel. And if it wasn't funny, it'd actually be okay. But what happens is it starts to creep inside, and we start to notice their vacations, their Disney trip, the way their kids looked like they were having fun. And you remember your Disney trip and how it was hot and how you were miserable and how they were miserable and how you swore you would never go back to the state of Florida and you wanted to drop off America. I mean, but their, their Disney trip looks great. It, they've got Elsa walking around with them the entire day. And you just, you get caught up in that, right? You see their vacations. You see their Disney trips. You see their kids straight A's. Oh, Junior just brought home another straight A. It's like the 37th time in a row. He's actually teaching the class tomorrow. He's so smart. Right, like we see those things. You're like, well, my kid, I'm just happy if he gets a C. Shows up in the right classroom. Right? I mean, like, you're, you're just being real, but you're not comparing your real life. You're comparing it to their highlight reel. Or you'll see their spa day, and you're like, my sorry husband or my sorry spouse hasn't sent me to the spa. Right? Or, oh, it must be nice to be at a Patriots game on a sideline. That's pretty cool. Um, I've got to bend my antennas right to make sure the Patriots game comes through. I mean, like, we constantly do this. The backstage, the perfect family picture, how they seem to know everybody, their perfect dessert. You're like, I don't remember the last time I had dessert. But we just scroll through, and every one of those is just a reminder about things we were lacking. And to top it off, we don't just do this in the electronic world. We do this in the real world, too. We, we have friends, and we compare their stories and their highlights to our stories and our struggles. And we do it to people who are in different stages and different seasons. I was in a coffee shop a couple weeks ago. It's just one of those moments of being overwhelmed with a lot of things going on. This old man comes in, sits beside me, kind of plops down, pulls out a book, has a cup of coffee, and it looks like he has absolutely nothing to do. And I start to get mad at him because I'm like, must be nice. I got this and this and this and this and just got nothing to do today, huh? You know, and he's like literally just sits over there and reads his book the entire day. Now, he's old and he's retired. But here I am in, in the midst of my life stage comparing myself to him. And, or we all know single people who think life is going to be perfect when they get married. And we all know married people who think if they could just be single again, their life would be perfect. Like we get caught up in this whole idea of comparison and you see other people's sales figures, and you see your sales figures, or you see what other people are getting in grants, and the papers they're writing, or the grades they bring home, or the goals that they score on the field. And what can happen is what creeps into us is this quiet sense of desperation and resignation. You just say, you know what, I'm going to give up. And this passage says that if we don't watch out, that sense of despair can eat, eat away and pave the way for our relationships, can start to destroy our dreams. And if we're constantly comparing ourselves, it even starts to take away the enjoyment of life because all you can focus on is what everyone else is doing and all the parties that everyone else seems to be having while you're there alone by yourself. But that's one extreme. There's another danger, too, that is that's on the other side. If you're not careful, this isn't your struggle. There's still another struggle that you and I can fall into when it comes to comparison. And in verse 6, he says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. You see, the second danger of comparison is the two hands that are full of toil and that are chasing after the wind. 
You see, this other danger, it's not resignation. It's this restless pursuit. Whereas this life is bitter, this life is not happy no matter what. It's never enough. They want a faster car, a bigger house, a better salary. And there's this drive and this ambition that goes well beyond the point of health. It becomes a consuming obsession. And in their restless pursuit, others begin to pay for it. Their family pays for it. They even pay for it themselves, physically and emotionally and spiritually. They begin to suffer. I think the Eskimos, there's a, there's a story of an Eskimo hunting technique that comes to mind when you start to think about this life that's consumed with this restless drive for more. The Eskimos um, know that wolves have this insatiable desire for blood. And so what Eskimos would do when they were wanting to hunt wolves for their carcasses and for their fur is they would take a little bit of blood and they would freeze it on the end of a knife. They would bury the knife in the middle of the snow and the wolves would smell the blood. And the wolves would, would walk up to the knife and they would lick the knife and they would taste this warm sensation of blood. Of course, they don't realize it's their own blood. They just taste the blood. And they start to lick faster. And they start to lick harder. And each, each one brings more and more blood. Until literally they lick themselves to death and collapse because they bled out in the very pursuit of what they're going after. I think this is a picture of what it looks like for a life that's in this restless pursuit of all these other things. It ends up killing them and destroying them. When you and I start to chase after things and items, homes, cars, outfits, electronics, right, the bigger television, we're pursuing things that in 10 years are going to be in a landfill buried somewhere that we're going to forget we even owned. But while in the pursuit of those things, we started to overwork. We started in the place of overworking, become unhealthy and demanding and it starts to affect the relationships that we have with our spouse or our kids or our friends or even our employees. Now, with our, with our friends and with our families and our employees, we, we justify it. We say it's potential. I'm just trying to help them reach their potential. But I've seen husbands destroy their wives and urging her to reach her potential. I know adults who I'm friends with who need counseling because the way their father or their mother drove them to reach their potential. And the way that they would step on a ball field and they would overcoach their child in order to push them. And what happens is you have your spouse exhausted, your kids exasperated, your employees are spent, and you've overreached in every area of life and you find yourself exhausted and collapsed, realizing that the things that you chased after weren't even chasing after. They took away your life. And Solomon says, look, you've got to realize that there are these two really strong, strong dangers that happens when we get consumed by comparison. You can either find yourself in a place of resignation, of bitterness, or you can find yourself in a place of this restless ambition, in a place of nothing is never 
enough. And both, both end up isolated. Both individuals, both places, you end up there alone because there's not enough room for someone else to step in it with you. But he ends with, you know, but there is another way. And that's what this series is about. In verse 6, he says, better one handful with tranquility. You see, this idea of one handful with tranquility, the, the, the verbiage, the, the imagery that tranquility invokes in the language that Solomon wrote was a place of, uh, was like literally a place, a place of rest, a place of peace. Tranquility is almost an address, and he uses it that way. He says, look, living in the land of Ur, where people just more Ur, there is another way. There's a, a tiny little space carved out called contentment called peace. And it's not compelled by two hands. It's, it's one handful. You've got enough. And the other hand is there to do things, to experience things. See, I think comparison is a cage that you and I put ourselves in that's locked from the inside out. That we put ourselves in that cage and we can blame it on everyone else and all of the things they've got going in their life that's going so well. But in the end, comparison is a cage that we've chosen to lock ourselves in. But when you start to realize better is one handful with tranquility, the other hand is freed to open up the cage. The other hand is free to reflect and to write down in the life, write down the things in life that you're actually grateful for. Because there are things in life that we're grateful for, that we should be thankful for. The other hand is free to contribute and help others to cooperate and to make a difference. You see, I think there is a better way. And here's the promise of this series. If you're willing to, to join us this month or even if you can't be here for every Sunday, willing just to download the app and listen to the messages if you miss out on a Sunday, here's the promise, that there is a better way, that there is a place of a life and a type of life that makes a difference, that's not consumed by all the differences other people have between your life and theirs. And that better way is filled with peace, filled with contentment, and is filled with a life that makes others' lives better because it's not so consumed about making their life better and in the process becoming better. And so I'm excited for this series. I'm excited for what this series holds for you and I through the month of November. And I want to encourage you, maybe for some of you, the first step would be, okay, I want to dive in. Well, this month we're doing something called life groups. And we're going, it's just, it's groups that meet weekly. And there's nothing weird about it. Kind of circle up at someone's house that's a normal person, who has normal struggles like you do, and drink a little bit of coffee, eat a little bit of dessert, and work through the message in a deeper level to say, okay, what does this look like in my personal life? What does this look like to become aware of the comparison traps in my professional life? And for some of you, the next step just may be stepping out to, to join a life group for the next four weeks because at the end of this month, we'll take a break until January. Or for some of you, it may be, you know what? I really like what this church is doing. And to say, I want to contribute. I don't want to just be a consumer. I want to be a contributor. And, and I would encourage you, swing by starting point or click on starting point in the app and 
maybe say, you know what? I'm interested in serving, like greeting people, because I love to say hello or help set up, tear down. I'd, like once a month, I'd like to help out and to start making steps towards contributing and cooperating, not just consuming. But I think a great starting point, and that's what we want to do before we finish up this, um, our time together, is just to, to kind of leave space to pray, process, and to say, God, help me become aware of the areas in my life where I'm comparing. Because I think that's the first step. We're so good at comparing, we forget. We don't even know we're doing it. It's almost second nature. We look at Facebook, we look at Instagram, we flip through Twitter, and we don't even realize it's a running commentary about what our life doesn't have or has more than someone else. And just a simple pray, prayer during this time of saying, God, could you help me become more aware of the comparison traps that I'm falling into. And this song is called, Here's My Heart. And it's just a simple declaration of, God, here's my heart. Help me be more sensitive to your love, but to the things that I can do that take me away and to the type of life that is filled with regrets and not a life that I, I get to at the end and that I'm glad I lived, surrounded by people I love who know me best and respect me most. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to transition. I want to thank you for being here today. And I really am excited about what this month holds for us as we start to free ourselves from a life of comparison and find freedom in the process. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the hope that you bring. Thank you for the life that you give. Thank you for the way that you desire us to be set free. That there is contentment. That there is a way that's better than the two ways that we see. And so may you be honored. May you be glorified. May you speak and lead in this time. In Jesus' name.